Welcome to NeuroNoodle's Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast, featuring tech legend Jake Gunkelman. He's the man who has read well over half a million brain scans, and Dr. Marie Swingle, author of iMinds. Our goal is to provide information and promote options for better mental health. The NeuroNoodle Podcast is supported by listeners and businesses just like you. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. Hello, hello. Guy Odishaw. Did I say that right? You did, yes. All right. I'm known for my pronunciations. <laughs> well <laughs> done. And so, sorry to hear about your dog, Jay. Oh, you know. Into that. 14 years, we had to put him down. Um, but, you know, it's, he had a great life. And uh, yeah. we have a, he was a Vishla. We have uh, 14 years of, from a six-month-old rescue on uh, oh. pictures online. He had his own blog. That's how spoiled he was. You know, so, um, well, he had a good run. Yeah, so we've got a Ridgeback uh, okay. instead of a Vishla. And yeah. uh, they're very active outdoors, but he's sleeping on a chair next to me. Indoors, he just curls up. You know, nice. He's real chill. Nice. Yeah, that's, that's, that's quite a dog, Ridgeback. Friends yeah. got a couple of them, and that's a lot of dogs. Yeah, we were thinking of a second one when he gets trained up at, you know, nine months or a year old, when he's, mm-hmm. you know, solidly trained, considering picking up a second one. They're, they go good in pairs. So. Mm-hmm. But then Vishva yeah. goes good in pairs as well. So. Yeah. We have but, we have three Huskies. Ah, well, no. three. Three. <laughs> I had a cross between a St. Bernard and a Samoyed Husky. Uh, and it, it got the drooling of the St. Bernard and the hyperactive of the Husky. So, oh, uh, you know, I'm get a, a pretty, was it a pretty big dog? I mean, talk like it was, 80 a, big, pounds? It was a big dog and oh, uh, very playful. Uh, and um, we lived about a block from a school, which had a playground and he would come home with gloves and boots um, from playing <laughs> and we would just set him on the porch's railing and the kids would come and get him, you know, so, oh uh, what a small town, small town, you know, so, <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, anyway, we, I, I've had dogs, you know, ever since I was little and it seems like a natural part of the family. So, and they're, you know, they're, they're just like a family member. They tug on the heartstrings when you lose them. So, Oh, yes. And often more so. Yeah. Yeah. So, yep. <laughs> so well, Guy, Guy Od- Odishaw, you're from uh, Cerebral Fit, huh? Um, yes. And then we guys, uh, we, we spoke, I don't know, I'm going to say a year ago um, with my partner, Fran Baganek, as part of Bhakti Brain Health Clinic. Um, Bhakti, Bhakti, yeah. Yep. And, and then this time around... Um, my team reached out under cerebral fit and, and then you guys were nice enough to give them a thumbs up. And so here we are, but I don't know if you guys recall, uh, um, we kind of originally came to you guys somewhat through John Anderson, who was our clinical mentor. And, and so it was John who had kind of encouraged us to reach out to you guys to chat and, and, uh, that's right. Good old John. We haven't heard from John in a long time. John is, you know, he's enjoying retirement and, and, um, you know, he's, you know, still around. We run into him every now and again, you know, 
either not, in the clinic or here in the cities. But if you're sending 400 bucks his way, he's not retired. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, he's. Uh, I think we have Do Dr. Marie Swingle. Hello, just coming on board here. Dr. Marie, say hello to Guy. Hello, everyone. Morning, Dr. Swingle. <laughs> Pleasure to meet you. <laughs> Let me just permit you to actually meet me. There we go. Here I am. Wonderful. Uh, and there I am for real. Okay. <laughs> so, so, Guy, it's cerebral fit. You have a lot of photobiomodulation uh, equipment. Uh, what? At least that's what I see on the website. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, this brand that, than the last brand when we had you on the last time? Sure. So, so I'm, I still have Bakti Brain Health Clinic. It's up and running and doing great. And 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 that's really an in clinic um, kind of you know QEG ERP neurofeedback centric practice. And then, so we also run the neurofield system. So we have all of the, the stims. So we do alternating direct photo um, magnetic stimulation. Um, so that's that's kind of our brick and mortar. Um, and I have another brain health clinic, the, the Minnesota Brain Health Clinic, where we do the Bredesen protocol. And so we, we do a lot of that same stuff in the dementia Parkinson space. But then CerebroFit is my collaboration with Dr. Jeff Drobot uh, in Arizona, who does the biomed center. And we got together, our clinics do very similar things, but we had some frustration around like the limit of geography. And, and so we decided that what was needed was kind of more of a device based company. So we're a virtual clinic. We do virtual consults, put together a suite of devices and ship those to people. And, and then, so, yeah, so we have the, you know, the transcranial photobiomodulation helmet, and the photobiomodulation panels. We have a mouth guard, nasal laser, so a lot of light. But then we do the audiovisual entrainment, frequency-specific microcurrent. Uh, we use the Muse headband as a sleep tracker and a kind of a you know low-end neurofeedback um, device. And we haven't gotten into the kind of home-based neurofeedback, but that's on the list of things. Still waiting for the you know, the technology there to get a little more, I don't know what to say. For, for the people I tripped over and fell into this podcast and they hear photobiomodulation, that's a lot of syllables. Uh, what does that mean? What does it do? Sure. So photobiomodulation, basically putting photons into the body for biological purposes. There's hence the name, very simple. You know, in, in our case, we primarily use red and near infrared as, you know, kind of generally more, the more kind of broadly medicinal frequencies of light. Um, you know, can you use ultraviolet, blue, um, far infrared? Yes, those also have their medicinal qualities, but they're much more niche and have to be monitored or titrated more specifically. Whereas red and near infrared, there's no maximum dose. So you, so you just don't have to worry about the too much side of it. And the benefits are much more just pro-health, pro-vitalization. Um, you know, there's 
kind of 11 kind of common benefits that are articulated with um, red and near infrared light. So things like increasing ATP production in the mitochondria, reducing inflammation through the cytochrome C pathway, uh, increasing nitric oxide, balancing the reactive oxygen species. One of my favorite ones is kind of what happens at the the mRNA and RNA level and in the transcriptase process when cells are making a copy and, and how we can optimize the, you know, the genetic, um, you know, fixing genetic mutations kind of at, at that point of the cell copy, uh, but also just what's happening at the RNA level in terms of, you know, kind of emerging understanding of uh, kind of the role RNA plays in memory and cell signaling. And, and so there's just a lot of fascinating stuff happening, kind of deep science in that regard. So there's, you know, a lot, a lot of pro-health, pro-vitalization, uh, pro-regenerative medicine things happening when you put uh, photons into the body and kind of charge the system. Helps with pain. Uh, can it can you know certain frequency certain power density can be put into uh, nerves and 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 can see that kind of suppress nerve conduction and and therefore have an effect on pain so it's kind of like a pain dampening. And then COVID, uh, when you put it in the nose, uh, I'm just going from the past on my notes from the past shows. Sure, it's wild. You know, you put. You see the thing in the nose, like, wait a minute, I don't want that in my nose, especially after <laughs> the first COVID test. Right. But it can the the light can kill COVID. Is that right, or am I am I, am I reading my my notes wrong here? Sure. So, um, I, I I wouldn't go towards kill COVID. So, you know, there's so to say, um, blue and ultraviolet but blue being a gentler version of ultraviolet is known for its antimicrobial properties and so you we we do use blue in some of our devices for its antimicrobial properties so that'd be more blue than yeah. the nasal laser for example which is red but um what we're looking at there is you know a, a number of effects that are happening kind of at the level of the nasal passageway so what's happening there um, and then, of course, as it's making its journey through, it's going to hit the eyes, not that relevant to COVID. But then the place, two places it comes in relative to COVID is one, the olfactory bulb sitting kind of right at kind of the top of the, the nose and uh, and then just general brain effect. And so if we think about, you know, like some of the effects of the red or near infrared light effects are the same across those two. It's just penetration is different. We have an anti-inflammatory effect, and one of the 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 mm, kind of sequelae of the the spike protein was causing inflammation, and and so you get both a tissue level inflammation, but then you can also get a neural inflammation. So red light being anti-inflammatory can help downregulate inflammation in the olfactory bulb itself, a tissue level, but also at a neurologic level. And so this is one of the places we are seeing kind of a return of smell in people with a COVID, long COVID. So it was one way, but also just from the effect of the spike protein itself, there's part of the cascade where red light interrupts. So much like it does in the cytochrome C pathway, where it'll interrupt inflammation in cytochrome C pathway, there's uh, another chromophore that was specific to COVID 
where red light was found to interrupt that process that was leading to neuroinflammation and red light would, would interrupt that. Yeah. That's, that's what I was thinking of. I'm going to yeah. edit that and make myself sound smart. Now, are, are you in a, a Edina? Uh, yes. Our, so Bhakti Brain Health Clinic is in Edina, uh, Minnesota. And then again, my partner, Jeff, down in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, um, in his clinic. But yes, we have a, a brick hot and mortar. part of the country for us because uh, the Vikings are there. They do the training out there pretty close, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And yep. uh, Kirk Cousins, he was on the Netflix series Quarterbacks, and that's everybody's everybody's you know say hey what's that about what you know neurofeedback breathing hrv so mm -hmm. uh the the athletes out there if they're going to use light therapy what are they going to use it for sure so we have a you know a small but growing collection of pro athletes uh, that we're working with photobiomodulation is one of those domains um i would say like the, probably the most common is more on the orthopedic side. So using it for injury. So what, again, what are we doing? We're doing something like reducing inflammation. Like I was just walking through one of the training centers the other day and, and you know, players are walking down the hall past me and, you know, one has, um, you know, alternating current stim on the leg and another one has got photobiomodulation strapped to his calf. And then another one has got photobiomodulation wrapped around his shoulder and go into the recovery room. And we got athletes, you know, laying in these uh, red, the red beds, you know, so you just have this row of, of uh, players laying in the red beds and the guy in the infrared sauna with the near infrared light, you know, and they're actually having them in there working out. So just, a, you know, a ton of this being applied across, you know, many of the beneficial applications, but it was just, it, it, it was from my side being in this business, it was totally enjoyable to just see the players have these wearables strapped on going about their day. You know, they're going to class, they're going to a, you know, a, a coaching session, they're just going to grab, you know, lunch. Uh, and, and they're treating themselves. You know, it's just it's it's just fantastic to see in that environment. The buy-in um, tells me that that if this is good on that level and they understand the value of it, it's the same for just the average person walking around. They you know they're going to get those same benefits of it. But if it's understood with elite athletes, you know it. It, it right. you know it can trickle down. So yeah, so a lot on the orthopedic side. I would say from my side, being you know I spend most of my time with the brain, not enough time spent on the brain, and and I really think that's just you know again you cite the the Netflix um, documentary, that's been really impactful on people asking this question of like oh my brain. And of course, you know, you guys, uh, we have been touting the the importance of treating the brain. You know, when I'm talking with athletes, or mostly talking with trainers and coaches, it's like these athletes have been training, you know, most of their life, certainly all of their adult life, their body is pushed within a percent of its peak performance. They have nutrition people, they're guiding everything that goes in their mouth. They have a sports psychologist that is you know, curating their mind and trying to keep every thought, you know, positive and ordered. And, but, but there isn't, there's very, very few who are actually treating the organ itself. And, and, you know, so this is often my 
pitch to the coach or the trainer is, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't like train the bicep and not train the tricep. Like that just wouldn't make sense. Nobody in, 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 uh, you know, training would do that. Strength training coach would never do that. So it's like, why wouldn't you train the brain itself as an organ, just like it's a muscle and go direct to it. And, and, and so we're starting to see that, that this is catching on. And so my hope is that we'll see some of these guys doing photobiomodulation for their brain and not just for their knee and their elbow and their shoulder. What percentage? I think that's the legacy that we're, we're, we're fighting, you know, for years and years and years, all of us in supposedly the science of the mind never actually looked at the organ. So finally, we're talking about this really overtly. I have a couple of questions, though, um, sure. in terms of, you know, uh, dose and dose management. Um, one of the concerns that some of us are expressing is people are just going out and buying this thing and just showing it up their nose or on their heads and in their ears and, and whatnot. Can you speak a little bit to to that component in terms of the the role of the practitioner, um, dose management, regulation, et cetera, the importance or lack of importance of that? Sure. Yeah. Great question. Um, so. Oh, what to say. So uh, on one end, like there's a, there's a, a fully legitimate, simple way to do photobiomodulation that does not need to be complexified. And, and, and again, legitimate benefits, absolutely go for it. And then increasingly, almost weekly now, the, as the research is getting more well-defined, there's more people doing research, there's more collaboration across research groups. So you're seeing this kind of branching of like, oh, that finding was interesting. I'm going to go over here and do a study that is going to dial into a very specific piece of the, the part of your study that kind of was illuminated. So we're, again, weekly getting reports from the front of the differential uh, application of photobiomodulation and that it matters. So, so although that's true and we can get incredibly now, I mean, and again, to say we're just starting, but we can get incredibly sophisticated in what nanometer, where, how much to have what effect and starting to see a positive and a negative, but I'll qualify negative in a, in a moment. But at the same time, that doesn't take away the very simple basics of, of a person, you know, just like get out in the sun, you know, light on skin, right? And, and get the beneficial, uh, you know, irradiation of the sun, which is mostly red and near infrared. Um, it just, you know, during the peak of the day, you get a higher percentage of blues and UVs, but the red and infrared still there. The general prescription is morning and evening sun because there's lower percentage of the UV and more red and near infrared. But really, anytime, get out, sun on skin, very important, right? And and so that's that's photobiomodulation that life evolved in, right? And so you guys are probably, I'm sure you're familiar with the research showing that modern humans, you know, get about 93% less near infrared light than we did historically. And historically is 500 years ago, you know, not 50,000 years ago, but just 500 years ago, humans spent more time outside in the sun with less 
clothing and no sunscreen, right? Can I just jump in there? I love the direction that this is going in. As you know, an individual with this skin, and I, I don't mind sharing, I, I lost the redhead lottery, um, meaning I did get that scary little melanoma. All mm-hmm. good now, by the way, years and years ago. Um, but I think that's a major issue that we're not talking about in psychology and psychiatry, is the mental health connection with lack of vitamin D. And believe me, I am pro sunscreen. Um, but if you always go out, you don't go out or you go out in uh, with sunscreen, uh, we are really uh, depriving ourselves of something that the human body and now we're realizing the human brain needs so thank you for bringing that up the Mm -hmm. the other thing i love and i actually scribbled it it down and i'd love to just i don't know how much of a tangent we can go on but comps complexified versus differentiated and i think that is a major issue in our uh, discipline. I think we need to differentiate um, and and really have specifics, but that's a far cry from just complicating things. Jay, can you speak a little bit to that? Because I know you're the master of differentiation and specifics. Um, And I'm anti-complexification. Can we make that a new word? I love it. (laughs) But we need the the detail. Can we... uh, Pete, can we go on this this um, this tented for a bit? Right away. Yeah. Okay. I, I have to say uh, that that the point that there's more and more uh, structured research on yeah. uh, photobiomodulation. Uh, what frequencies? Uh, uh, not not just the frequency of the light, but also the flashing. How how you modulate that frequency? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the iSync group out of uh, Korea mm-hmm. has just uh, published a, a small study, 58 people that have mild cognitive impairment um, uh, ended up having uh, uh, 18 weeks of sessions and they ended up having uh, dramatic improvements in their brain. Um, AI scoring the brain activity gives you a percent fit for mild cognitive impairment versus dementia. And they moved significantly away from the dementia uh, domain, uh, regaining cognitive function. So um, it's not just uh, peak performance athletes, it's also maintaining cognitive function uh, as as we all get older and have uh, some cognitive loss. Um, You know, the normal expectation is that your brain is going to slow as you age. Now, historically, they, they, the studies said starting at age 58, uh, you're allowed a half a cycle a second per decade slowing in the brain, and that's normal. Mm-hmm. Well, that's statistically average or normal. Mm-hmm. It's not healthy normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a difference between the statistical degradation that you can expect with aging uh, if you don't do something about it and optimizing your outcome, which is basically what we're trying to do for folks. And uh, the, the maintenance of cognitive function is something that we can do. Um, they, they observe that slowing of the background alpha fairly dramatically uh, as cognitive decline. In fact, Roy John 
who has passed a number of years ago now, uh, did a nice study that predicted 26 months later, based on the EEG, whether you're going to be from the first presentation of doc, there's something not quite right with my memory. Do I have dementia or what? You know, that office visit, if you do the exam at that point, two years later, those that had alpha below the alpha band were hospitalized with full care. If you were still in the alpha band, parietally, um, you were basically maybe needing some assistance, but you're still at home. So uh, a very, very powerful predictions based on the slowing of the background alpha. We can train people that have faster alpha, the seniors who learned this either by photobiomodulation or from neurofeedback or other forms of stimulation, coined the term brain brightening for the effect. You know, if you, if you speed up the background alpha, it's not just some number, it's actually how many samples per second you're taking of the outside world. It's your resolution perceptually. If you have faster alpha, you have better resolution. The seniors suggested that things were crisper, sharper, brighter, um, higher resolution. But they also had memory problems before where they couldn't, you know, what what's that guy's name? What's that address? I mean, the semantic and declarative memory just doesn't work with slow alpha very well. With fast alpha, it works very well. So the seniors who sped up their alpha had this brain brightening effect. And again, they coined that term. It wasn't some helicopter in term that was dropped on them. Uh, they, they came up with this ground up from, from their base experience. And um, Tom Budzinski, uh, uh, again, passed many years ago now, was one who uh, started working in that area uh, in Florida. He had the Ponce de Leon project, you know, Ponce de Leon looking for the fountain of youth and all that kind of stuff historically. Uh, well, apparently they're still in Florida looking for it, but uh, that, that aside, um, uh, his project actually uh, was very, very positive. There weren't a lot of people who replicated it until much more recently. Uh, we actually had uh, 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 Christina Palmquist uh, get her uh, doctorate uh, by replicating his brain brightening protocols. We did the QEG assessments pre and, pre and post to validate the actual brain changes. Um, and uh, uh, like, like many students, she didn't have enough money to actually pay for the services. <laughs> so you, I, I think we charge her 50 bucks a head for the pre post which is $25 a study, which is, which is way below what it costs us, you know, but I mean, if you don't help the students out, they're not going to get the work done, you know, and, and yeah, if, if you own a company, what the hell, if you can't help somebody out with what you're doing in your company, you're not doing it right, you know, so uh, we, we were happy to help out on that and a whole bunch of other projects. So uh, we've seen brain brightening work, uh, speeding it up with various technologies, photobiomodulation, uh, photobiomodulation, uh, you know, eyes and, and direct, um, uh, EEG training, um, MagStim. I mean, there's, there's so many ways to modulate the brain. And mm. uh, if you modulate it to speed it up just slightly, 
it has a tremendous benefit neurocognitively. Now, it's speeding up the background alpha, and faster alpha is great, but you can also create excess beta, and excess beta is not always a good outcome. So the stimulation for some people that have a nervous system that's already prone to overactivation, you have to be very careful. You can modulate it to stabilize it. And that's, you know, mag stim, great big magnet. If you pulse it 10 hertz or faster and your brain waves got a slightly slower alpha than 10, all that's excitatory. But if you find beta spindles in the EEG and you hit it with faster frequencies, you're going to exacerbate that problem with a cortex. You have to end up stimulating it with a one hertz, which is inhibitory, and it actually shuts down the beta. You can, if you're a neurologist working with epilepsy, you have a beta hotspot as a trigger point. You can actually work to stop the trigger point in epilepsy. But photo, you know, transcranial magnetic stimulation is typically done by psychiatry, not neurology. It's approved for depression and OCD, uh, not for epilepsy work. Uh, so the neurologists are using it off-label. You know, the FDA regulates the manufacturer, not the user. So it doesn't matter what label is on it for the user, ultimately. And uh, that there are neurologists who use uh, TMS to shut down the seizure focus as well. So what frequency you stimulate with and what your intention is has to change depending upon what's there in the end person, the target that you're pointing all these devices at. You have to assess them well enough to know that you're not going to give them something that they don't need. Um, that if you actually look before you dive in, my grandmother did tell me you don't dive into the water before you know what's under the surface. And I think it applies to more than just swimming. Um, we actually like to look at the brain function before we intervene and, and try to manipulate it with all the various tools. And, and there's more tools now by far than when I started 52 years ago so um you know we, so jay when you're saying look at the brain you mean get a 19 channel eg qeg where where are you going to see the blue uh, uh blue alpha <laughs> where's that um, going to happen on dementia if if you end up having uh a, a full eg qeg uh eyes open and eyes closed um and some people do a task. We prefer actually event-related potentials to a task. The tasks are difficult to, you know, reading tasks. Okay, reading for what age group, what education level. Um, math task. Well, you know, what age? I mean, what kind of math? Um, quadratic equations. You know, little kids aren't going to get those, and adults going to scratch their head pretty hard if they see quadratic equation you know so counting backwards is what we use yes yes well uh but you know uh, uh erps the stimuli can be very simple a picture of an animal or a picture of a plant little kids can differentiate them older people can differentiate them as long as your eyes are working you got it um uh, and you know, auditory stimuli can make erps as well but they're they're more standardized and and we can have uh, specific norms for the performance, um, and the the people who collect 
uh, reading or math tasks have a wider range of variability because there's not a very uh, constrained task really. Um, uh, historically, people that had databases said they didn't want to do a task because the tasks were uh, more variable. It, it increased the variability. Actually, Alan Gevins uh, proved that that's not the case. If you want an unconstrained task, tell somebody close your eyes and don't give them any further instructions. You know, close my eyes. I'm going to uh, ruminate about my taxes. Oh well. That's different than closing my eyes and meditating or closing my eyes and dozing. I mean, the, the unconstrained task is eyes open. Think about whatever you want to think about. Just don't move your damn eyes and, uh, and eyes closed. Those are unconstrained tasks. And if you actually put the brain on a specific task, it constrains the brain to the task. So there's less variability induced by task. Uh, than there is at rest with eyes open and eyes closed. Oh, well, um, the, the, the people who said they didn't want to do a task in the database because it added more variability were just, you know, not wanting to do that, you know. So a uh, good excuse, but not a, not a reason. Can I loop you back, Jay, into uh, talking about um, how you see um, the slow alpha? The well, uh, uh, first of all, eyes open, sometimes you don't see alpha at all. Uh, you can block alpha with the eyes open if you're hypervigilant. And so PTSD, anxiety, some circumstances, you don't have eyes open alpha. Close the eyes and then it pops in. Some people don't have alpha even eyes open. Those are low voltage fast people. They need to end up being trained to have SMR and then alpha. But um, most people... When you close the eyes, the alpha that you have with the eyes open doubles in size or more. And at that point, um, you can count the frequencies and the location. And there's a difference between alpha in the back of the head, where it kind of should be with your eyes closed. You close your eyes, your visual cortex should idle, and the sensory integration area should idle. But the frontal lobe, which is executive, well, why is that idle? You know, you just close your eyes. You, you, you didn't tell the executives to take a break, you know. So uh, it, when you see the alpha, the distribution of the alpha is very important as well. Uh, if you have alpha at the back of the head, then you're looking for what frequency. And each age has an expectation of normal statistically, not necessarily healthy optimally. So when I see age 58 and over a half a cycle a second per decade, I'm thinking that's the average rate of degradation, but it's not optimal for their age. I've recorded people over 100 years old with 10 hertz alpha, and I've reported pe recorded people in their 30s and 40s with alpha down in the 7-8 range, you know, and it's, it's not a pretty sight having somebody with slow alpha. Uh, they, they know uh, that their brain is not able to perform. And the trick is we can teach them to speed it up and that, you know, um, in, in Europe, before we expose them to the concept of neurofeedback, the Consciousness and Sleep Lab in Salzburg, Austria, had done a very nice correlative study. People with slow alpha, alpha 1, 8, 9 as a, as a peak, had poor semantic and declarative memory performance. 
people that had fast alpha, 11, 12 hertz peak, that superior semantic and declarative memory performance. Wonderful correlation. Well, we exposed them to the virus of neurofeedback, which they took back to Salzburg, contaminating their laboratory with this idea that you could train people to change their frequency. And on the way back to Salzburg, uh, Dr. Doppelmeyer, Michael Doppelmeyer, uh, came up with three years of experiments with this new technique of training brain frequencies. The first experiment they did was, remember those slow alpha people? We're going to do IAF plus one, individual alpha frequency plus one, one silly cycle a second faster. And they had cognitive enhancement. It's kind of like the old Virginia Slim commercial, if you're that old, when they still advertise cigarettes on TV, a silly millimeter longer. Well, this is a silly cycle a second faster, and it doesn't seem like much. You know, oh, I trained my brain. Dude, were you just promoting cigarettes? What? <laughs> What? No, 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 no. It's just a, a, si a, a small thing that doesn't seem significant that actually uh, uh, ends up making a difference. One cyclosecond, you'd think, well, that, you know, how, how, how can that make much of a difference? Well, one cyclosecond faster is better resolution, better memory, uh, a better performance. And some people need two, but, you know, you can train... One, you can train two. You can train people to speed it up too fast if you want to do that, and that's not a good idea. Um, over arousal, arousal performance. You know, under aroused per performance, moderate arousal level, high performance. To high arousal level, the performance drops off as you become arid and, and incapable of decision making because of the overflow of information. So, you you know, you you want to end up speeding it up to an optimal frequency, but not over taxing it. And that, that ends up requiring uh, somebody actually to look very carefully with appropriate equipment, um, decide whether the alpha is too far anterior or has too far in one temporal area or another uh, to moderate where it is in the brain. And you can modulate that with a wide variety of techniques, neurofeedback, neuromodulation, uh, techniques and uh, uh, luckily our brains are plastic and that sounds terrible nowadays with plastic pollution in the ocean and whatnot you know but plasticity is malleability formability changeability and our, our brains are neuroplastic they can change themselves um, and obviously there's there's a book about the brain that can change itself. So, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it's an amazing uh, organ, uh, the organ of consciousness. Um, at the same time, uh, the, the number of people that actually understand how consciousness works is pretty limited, uh, unfortunately. Guy, let me bring it, you back in here. Mm -hmm. uh, chronic pain, fibromyalgia. Somebody comes in with that. What do we do? Everybody can respond because, sure. you know, neurofeedback can, can help. Uh, can light help with, with, with that? I know on the chronic pain, but the fibromyalgia, I don't want to get ahead of my skis, so I'm going to mute and listen for my answer. Sure. So, so if, we, if we could, I, I wouldn't mind looping back to, to Dr. Swingle's uh, question and, and maybe just 
finish that up and then we can get into fibro, which is one of my, my favorite things um, uh, to work, to work on. So we were talking about dose and when we kind of um, kind of went down a rabbit hole. And so <laughs> not <we> here. <laughs> <laughs> so I was saying that it could be as simple as getting out in the sun and, and just getting light in the, in the, in the simplest kind of uncontrolled way and that there's benefit there. And, and so absolutely. And if we're going to add to that, I would say, if you're going to get out in the sun, um, take your shoes off, put your bare feet on the ground and get the grounding. And, and, and really, you know, we turn the human body into a battery at that point where we've got the charge from the sun and the ground of the earth and, and, you know, wonderful health benefits. And, and again, mountains of research to support this as a real, actual, scientifically validated process and not just, you know, folklore or something that your mom told you to do, right? Um, so on the simple end of photobiomodulation, we've got that. Then we get into using uh, devices to um, really what we're doing when we're using photobiomodulation device is we're taking a slim slice of the electromagnetic spectrum. In this case, you know, kind of red to near infrared. So something like 600 nanometers to 1400 nanometers, something in that range and, and having roughly similar benefits. Again, when we're at this coarse grain level, very similar benefits. Um, and we're just we're just saying we're just going to give the good and not the the harmful, right? So that would be your blues and your UVs in in too large of a dose, which happens in the sun. So we're just giving the body kind of the positive without it having to be used to counterbalance the negative. Then it gets to be used for something else, right? So um, so so again, there so there's a way in which that's just generally good for the body. So this is what I tell people is like, you know, put the helmet on, put it on, you know, no pulsing, just light, um, you know, do whatever your prescription is. You know, I tend to do a little bit on the higher side. So maybe 30 minutes as a person ramps themselves up, titrates their dose to 30 minutes a day. Because um, we're just putting photons into the system, period, just for all of the, the benefits of that. Right? And, and that's remarkably effective. You know, probably my largest patient population is people with MCI and dementia, probably 50 people under care right now, a handful with Parkinson's, a handful with dystonia, a handful with ALS. Um, and then, of course, you know, many other conditions, anxiety, depression, OCD, but our biggest population is dementia. And even if all I do is say, you're just going to do, you're going to ramp yourself up to 30 minutes a day uh, of light we get benefit. Now, again, as we can get, as we get, are getting more into the specifics and differentiating, we start to see that the different um, nanometers of light have different effects in different areas of the body. And it, it isn't necessarily consistent across people. So there's some good research showing what happens if you take like just straight light or you take pulsed light and you put say a, a 10 Hertz pulse light into, and so I'll just use a little bit of jargon here. You guys know this, but and probably your audience knows this because they listen to you guys. So um, they'll know the 1020 system. If you put, you know, a 10 Hertz pulse light into uh, F3, you get a certain response in the brain under the F3 electrode. If you do that same 10 Hertz pulse light under say, uh, you know, P4, P2, you will pick up 
um, uh, you know, a different response from the brain. And, and even if you see within a person a consistent response, when you go across people, you don't have a, a reliability of response. So, so we see that different brains are responding differently to the same stimulus. And, and so we're still, you know, working to make sense out of that. Like, what does this mean and how do we come to know and how can we predict what's going to happen? But again, so that's one way. Another way we see is if you put, say, a, an 800 um, a nanometer uh, light into the left uh, prefrontal cortex, you see, say, an increase in hemodynamics. So we've got an increase in, in, um, in a blood activity. But then you put in a maybe a 1070 nanometer to that same area, and what you get is a down regulation of hemodynamics there, but an up regulation of hemodynamics on the opposite side. And, and so as we start to come into this understanding that the nanometer starts to have a meaning, like, you know, in a way, intuitively, we can just say, of course, of course it does. But five years ago, we didn't have good research pointing to this as like, a, like, of course, this is true. So we had this more, again, kind of coarse grain idea that light has a similar effect wherever you put it. Turns out that's not the case. Uh, breaking it into the nanometers starts to have a difference. So you get different nanometers in different brain regions having different effects on different processes. And that that is not anywhere near mapped out yet. We're just beginning to understand that that's true. Um, I, I think we'll be a, we're a long ways away from being able to use that kind of prescriptively. But again, just because that's true, it doesn't mean, that just putting light into the brain doesn't have all the benefits that it has. Like clearly it does. That's been shown in, in research for, for a long time. I certainly see it in our clinical results. Jay just talked about seeing it in his clinical results. So we know it has a positive effect, but all we're doing is getting like a, a more and more, um, like a higher resolution understanding of what this technique does so we can apply it more specifically. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's our, 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 you know, about dosing. So, so yes, I think it's valuable to understand dosing. So what is the, what is the power density of the device that you output? Um, and, and then, um, at what distance for how long, because power density, time, distance equals dose. And then we have to look at kind of where you're imagining you're putting that dose in the body because, you know, superficial is going to get more compared to the depth. And, and so there's, you know, again, you mentioned the word complicated. It does get complicated, um, yeah. even though complicated we want to Complicated is, is, is acknowledging it's the complification. So the yeah, false right. exactly. to, right. to right. alienate or, you know, like legalese, they're, yeah. they're not intended for lawyers to understand. They're intended to keep us out. Right. Um, yeah. So I agree. We don't just need building to Building do on that, though, another yeah. question um, in terms of we always talk about the benefits. Can you talk a little bit of uh, risk to benefit analysis and what practitioners and those considering uh, introducing this into their uh, healthcare as one of their choices, what people should be thinking about? Sure. So, so great question. Um, 
on the that's on that, why they have me on <laughs> <laughs> on that kind of more coarse grain level uh we don't actually like there are no known negative side effects of photobiomodulation right across hundreds of thousands of of applications so research study applications of it um no um severe uh side effects right so nothing in that column zero so minor in the sense you get some skin warming that happens in the area but that that's not a side effect it's you know it's it's something that happened so we know on that level it's incredibly safe so at the level of safe perfectly safe again the sun we we all have been getting photobiomodulation for our whole life and actually enjoy it, like going to the beach. I don't think, well, what's the side effect of going to the beach, right? It's like fun. Um, so so on that side, the but now again, as our research is getting better, we start to see, let's say something like Parkinson's. So this is a fairly well somewhat known in the research literature that if a person is having motor symptoms in their Parkinson's, that it's risky to, to treat the whole motor strip in one treatment, because what you might do is increase the tremor rather than decrease the tremor. So there's, you know, the general guidance is just treat one side of the motor strip at a time. And if, if it can be determined, but is there is there tremor sidedness? Does it have a sidedness or predominance? Treat the opposite side. But but even that is, you know, it's not well understood enough to know that as an absolute convention. So there's a general guidance of just treat half the motor strip and you decrease your chance of increasing somebody's tremors. So here we could get into something that looks like a like a side effect, right? Because as a clinician, you wouldn't want to say to your Parkinson's patient, uh, hey, do photobiomodulation, you know, science says it's really good and they use it and their tremor gets worse. Now, good to understand, you're not making the condition worse, you're making that particular symptom, you know, you're, you're stimulating that, the, the, the production of that symptom. So there's no harm being done, but it is quality of life and it can be concerning for the person and that might turn them off of photobiomodulation as a modal modality, so we wanna be cautious. So there are things like that um, that are happening um, that we're beginning to understand, right? And, and again, we can get into these things that start to look like a side effect if, if we get you know kind of deep enough into our understanding of how we want to say, um, affect the salience mode network and what happens if we do whole head photobiomodulation how do we affect the salience network's function if we do whole head versus say doing just right frontal uh, lobe uh, photobiomodulation and let that be what excites the network and again there's no convention here there's there's just an understanding that that could happen. And so whole head photobiomodulation might have a non-optimizing effect on the salience network in a specific individual with a specific dysfunction. Yeah. So I think we just have to be open to the fact that it, it, it's not magic. And yeah. yeah. In Parkinsonism, uh, we've, got specific EEG markers uh, called a thalamocortical dysrhythmia. 
uh, where the alpha frequency has slowed down to about six cycles a second. It's not even in the alpha band anymore. And it turns off the lateral inhibition and gamma surrounds it. And the gamma intensity is uh, directly proportionate to the rigidity and physical stiffness um, as a symptom. Uh, if you can unlock that uh, slowed alpha with the stimulation, uh, you can end up turning off the symptom of Parkinsonism. Now, um, they, they implant uh, stimulators. Obviously, that's one way to do it. But the stimulation that we do from the outside in, not necessarily sticking a subthalamic stimulator in to, to turn off the tremor, but literally stimulating from the outside instead of from the inside, we can also modulate the symptom of tremor and rigidity and freezing that ends up happening in Parkinsonism. The sensory motor rhythm training has been shown to reduce the uh, rigidity and, and physical uh, freezing uh, as, a, as a symptom as well. So we have some of our best results with audiovisual entrainment in our Parkinson's uh, patients for tremor. Like one of my most severe uh, cases was a, a gentleman who was tremoring. By the time they got to me, he was tremoring, you know, six to eight hours a day and was basically bedridden. And his wife was full-time care at that point. And we started him with uh, photobiomodulation and nasal laser. I recommended helmet, but as a family, they had said, nah, we don't want to go there. We just want to do the audiovisual entrainment and the nasal laser. The, the audiovisual training entrainment uh, did the heavy lifting and within three weeks we had him you know down from seven hours of tremoring to barely any tremoring throughout the day and then he backed off the audiovisual entrainment tremoring returned restarted it and we were able to essentially eliminate tre tremor which allowed him to get up move around the house kind of do his um adls it allowed his wife then to not be full-time caretaker so then she could get back to her social circle and go play bridge and get out of the house uh, and and so you know with a relatively minor intervention right the device costs six hundred dollars so you have a six hundred dollar intervention um, he was able to get back essentially his quality of life. We could say that he didn't have any when he was spending most of the day in bed tremoring. And I've seen this across uh, my Parkinson's patients that we get really good tremor control using audiovisual entrainment. A number of mechanisms in there, but one is what Jay's talking about, the ability to affect that thalamocortical loop and, and bring a rhythmicity back and Sometimes it's about speeding that up, it, you know, as part of the process. But I would say it's more about regulating the function that is happening, that we can get this suppression in in um, yeah. uh, the presentation of this particular um, symptom. Um, another piece that I wanted to mention was Jay, you had talked about the the shift in peak alpha and 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 that and that the effect of that, which absolutely is is the case and and remedying that. But another piece, just branching on, we were talking about photobiomodulation, and one of the main effects photobiomodulation has is on mitochondria. So one of the, the pieces of research that is coming forward is seeing the drop-off in the number of mitochondria, uh, whole body, but here we're going to talk about brain, that we have a pretty significant drop-off of, of total mitochondria from age 20 to 40. 
And then from age 40 to 60, we have another steeper drop-off. And so we're looking at our MCI patients who are probably going to be in that 60 plus category. We know that they've had something that looks like about a 40% drop-off in the number of mitochondria. And again, good research showing that at the at, at the root of the, the neural networks is mitochondria firing and function. And so they go hand in hand. So again, if we're seeing decreased activity in the salience network or in the default mode network or the attention network, there are, there are mitochondria that are, um, that are niche specific in those different Broadman areas, in those hubs within those networks. So if you look at the mitochondria associated with say the default mode network in the frontal, those mitochondria are different than the mitochondria associated with the default network in the occipital lobe, right? So the, the, the species of mitochondria differentiate, so they respond to different stimulus. So again, when we're looking at applying photobiomodulation, we can think about the neuron and trying to stimulate neurons, but we can also think about stimulating mitochondria not just for ATP production, which is important, but it turns out mitochondria do a lot of cell signaling. They're, they're little information beacons that are helping multiple systems kind of stay in touch with one another. Um, so on, on this curiosity question for you guys, you guys kind of follow Michael Levin at Tufts at all in his research in, in bioelectric medicine? I'm not not the way I should. <laughs> no, so absolutely. I would say like, like, so he's kind of a public face of this for sure. So he's, he's been doing a great job over the years, getting out, doing, doing a podcast. You guys should have him on. He's fantastic. Just incredibly brilliant, articulate. Um, he's really got this down to a, to a, a very kind of nutrient dense tight presentation. Um, but his thing, and I'll just say a little bit about his stuff is, He's, he's looking at kind of biology in a, in a way that we think about neurology, right, on the neurofeedback side. And he's looking at gap junctions between cells as basically kind of the, you know, the neurons, the axons, the dendrites, the, the synapses between just regular cells in the body, right? So all cells have gap junctions in the way that they communicate information and form networks, neural networks, but in tissue is through gap junction. And so what he's been able to do to show kind of proof of concept is he's been able to take uh, animals that don't regenerate and get them to regenerate a limb. So you cut off a frog leg, you get the frog to grow back its leg. And he does that by manipulating the, the gap junctions and turning on a process that, you know, that says a subroutine in the bioelectrics of the frog that says, here's how you grow a leg. So they do a 24 hour, uh, stimulation, and then sit back and watch that leg grow over about six months, and it grows a perfect leg. And so he's repeated this, where he's you know he's done that on frogs, but they've also done it on a on a frog brain, where they induced a teratogen caused brain damage. So you've got a frog that's alive but can barely function. Then he goes in and he does his bioelectric thing, and he he initiates the subroutine of of grow a brain. And over a series of months, and he's got MRI images to show this, that brain regrows back to a neurotypical frog brain. And the frog goes on to function normally, can be trained normally. And, and he's doing that through, you know, kind of bioelectric 
uh, manipulation. And so, Froggy Frankenstein. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that because I knew about the uh, the leg. I wasn't aware of the the brain work. That wow. But I, I don't know whether I'm talking about humor or fact when I said Froggy Frankenstein. No. Yes. <laughs> yeah. How soon are we going to be regrowing our own brains? <laughs> well, exactly. So he's 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 working now in a mouse model, and they've been able to get a mouse to regenerate half a limb so far. But his goal is humans and regenerative medicine to be able to tell the body, um, like so. One of his things was on a tadpole to get a tadpole to grow an eye on its tail. He was able to do that. The eye is wired in and, and it can use the eye and can navigate with that eye. So his thing is, it, you don't want to work on a genetic level where you're trying to micromanage the biology to say, I need you know a, a retina cell here and I need a lens cell here. You turn on the subroutine that says, make an eye. And then it makes an eye and wires it in and the, and the organism goes about using it. Uh, so... He, you know, kind of his his idea, so his, his philosophy is this idea of what he calls TAME, technological approach to mind everywhere. And this idea that at every level of biology, for sure, but he'd expand beyond that, there's mind. And if we can interact with the mind rather than the parts, so rather than pushing parts around, if we can interact with the intelligence, we can get things to happen that we don't even have a clue how to do from uh, moving the parts around. Like we don't know how to build an eye, but if you can tell an organism that knows already knows how to make an eye to make an eye, then it just makes an eye or a leg, like his his six-legged frog. He just told it to, to grow two more legs and it did and they're functional and the way he goes, there's two headed animals that he just said, you know, grow a second head and it did. Um, and so, so for our standpoint, I'd like to grow an eye, but not necessarily on my tail. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and and it'd be great if they could uh, produce a pituitary because I'm missing one of those. Um, yes, but, you know, you know, it's it's astounding what we can deal with with the losses that we suffer. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, the redundancy uh, built into the human to allow us to be resilient is astounding. And, um, you know, I'm living proof that you can be missing more parts than you might think you, you could possibly live without. Uh, I had a doctor who uh, grew up in India with their medical system and he came to the lab to study EEG. And he sees my medic alert hanging on and said, oh, you're a diabetic. Not a bad guess if you see a medic alert, you know, but I said, no, I don't have a pituitary. And uh, he, he was from India, was, you know, darker skinned fellow. He went gray and, and staggered. He almost fell down. And he said, you can't be alive. You know? And I said, well, it's close. I mean, it's almost absolutely the case. I can't be, I, I almost die all the time, but um, you have to change your theory Apparently, in their theory, the, the pituitary is the, the seat of the soul, and I'm a, a soulless bastard here now uh, with, without my pituitary. Uh, but it, it took him quite a while to not be freaked out by the fact that I, I didn't have one. And he wanted proof, you know. 
Uh, oh, well, no, you have the surgery. You still have a pituitary. No, 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 no. I, I, yeah, let me get you the MRI slices and, and the doctor's write-up of the surgery and whatnot. And he, he was shocked. I mean, they had, they had to change his entire concept of, of life, basically, in order to uh, allow me to be alive and, and existing. Because yep. it was obvious that I was to, I was there. You know, you could poke me. I would I would say, "Ouch!" You know. So, uh, so I think you 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 bring up a I think an important point, important uh, um, reality, truth about our biology. And and so again, I'm going to you know go back to Michael Levin. One of his things that he's talking about in his theory, his tame theory, um, technological approach to mind everywhere, is um, is this idea of of agential material. So that that you know, not looking at cells or neurons or you know a- anything in the body as just kind of dumb material that's just sitting there that we push around and make it do something. Even you know, the level of molecules, this idea that there's an intelligence, and so this definition that he kind of uses is William James's uh, definition of intelligence, which is the the ability to to kind of um, find multiple solutions to a problem. So, so that a cell is a problem-solving machine, basically. And, and so if you put a barrier in front of that cell to do what it is, it's kind of typical behavior, intelligence is it'll find another way to do it, right? And so to your point, Jay, your body has found another way to live without a pituitary, right? So that's your natural intelligence saying, I've got another problem to solve. Like, oh, I, I had the luxury of a pituitary, so I could do it this way. Now I don't, I got to find another way to do this. And, and it happens, right? Are you and saying Jay is smart? Uh, Jay's, Jay's cells <laughs> are brilliant. <laughs> I'm, I'm lucky. <laughs> Even my bad luck is pretty good stuff. What is fibromyalgia and how? Oh, yes. Thank you. Yeah. What can we do for the people out there? Because I've heard so many people say nobody can help me and Yep. Is it a lost cause? What can we do, Guy? Absolutely. So great. So for me, in my world, fibromyalgia goes under this larger umbrella of central sensitization. It's, and, and so there's a whole theory of what central sensitization is. At its root, it's an information processing problem. The system has lost the plot around how to process information in a, in a biologically typical way. So I'd say neurotypical, only we're talking about tissues and and cells distributed in the body that aren't neural tissue, but we need a term to fill this in, you know, kind of, so for the moment, I'll say neurotypical. So the the system has has lost the neurotypical pattern of how to process information. And so what do you see in people who have this condition is you do a treatment that makes complete sense. It's a well-considered, intelligent treatment, and that person ab reacts to it. Right. So maybe the first week they're getting better. And then the second week, they're much worse. It varies. There's high variability in this. But the overall pattern within a person, and if you look at a population of people, and I've seen thousands of people with this condition, is what you don't get is a linear path to resolution. So you can do, you know, you can do massage, you can do acupuncture, you can do chiropractic, you can do functional medicine, you can do medications, you name it. And what you get is always this imbalanced system that's just wobbly and seems to get wobblier over time, and 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 so with this the with the the um, 
we take on the gestalt of the, the central sensitization, it gives us a way to understand this and make sense of it, like what's happening. So to me, what I now do, so I, I didn't do this for 25 years with my fibromyalgia patients, but now I do. And for the first time in 30 plus years of practice, I actually have clients who would say they don't have the condition anymore. They're living normal lives. They're not modifying their life. They're pain-free. They're active. They eat what they want. Uh, and how we did this was really an approach at looking at affecting the information processing in the, the whole system rather than trying to affect the like, oh, you have pain here, let's try and medicate your pain through some mechanism. Or if it's say IBS, let's try and treat your intestines as if the problem is, is there and do some direct treatment to the tissue or the function of the organ. Those pretty much always fail. At best, they're a management and usually given enough time, um, they're a dysregulation more than a regulation. And so this is the only that I found. And so one of the keys has been neurofeedback. Like by far, I get the best success when I can do a, a good lengthy course of neurofeedback with people and get the brain sorted out. Many, many, many of their symptoms just go away. Like we, even if we never address them, they, they just stop being part of their subjective report then we may start to add in other ancillary services because indeed there can be kind of end organ damage from a person who's had this condition long enough because that organ has been getting bad information for years. And, and so its function and state of health has degraded. Now I say organ, I don't just mean liver pancreas. I mean, anything. It could be, you know, the, the carpal tunnel or the bicep or your Achilles tendon uh, or the vasculature or like you, any organ in the body and a group of tissues that are organized into a function. It's an organ. That organ's been getting bad information. And, and so it hasn't been maintaining itself. So we indeed may have cleanup work to do, but the only thing that I see being effective is if we if we can repair the information processing system, then all of the therapies that should have been helpful all the way along start to become helpful. And, and so that, that's, that's kind of my approach to fibromyalgia. I'm a huge proponent of uh, neurofeedback and then you know neuromodulation as a supplement to that. And I would extend that to something like frequency-specific microcurrent to do roughly the equivalent of neurofeedback on the brain, but doing it at that level, as Michael Levin talks about tissues having networks, that, that we're addressing the network function at the tissue level, which is information communication and processing, not trying to address the tissue. I'm not working on their trigger point, I'm working on the gap junction communication system in the body, the same as I'm working on the synapses in the brain. Guy, if we're in Minnesota or Arizona, how can we uh, find you guys? Sure. So uh, cerebralfit.com. So just cerebral, F-I-T.com. You'll find a direct phone number for me, direct email address for me, um, a ton of research, everything I've talked about today. I'm a big believer in putting the research out there. So we have mountains of research kind of backing up the scientific rationale for all of the things that I've talked about today. 
But most important, people can can just directly engage with me through the website. They can go on and book a free consult right there. Um, and we can you know hop on a Zoom and have a conversation. And then similar, all of that is true for uh, Dr. Grobot in um, Scottsdale. But again, CerebroFit, we don't really presume necessarily a brick and mortar. We work virtually. I have people all over the US, all over the world that I work with. Guy Odishaw, Jay Gunkelman, Dr. Marie Swingle. Another fantastic episode of Neuro Noodle, Neuro Feedback Podcast. Have a great weekend, all. The Neuro Noodle Podcast is supported by listeners and businesses just like you. 